studs on CITR 101.9 FM. Uh, this week is a Comics Critics Roundtable. I am joined by uh, Joe McCullough, uh, a.k.a. Jog the Blog, uh, Bill Cartolopoulos, or Cartolopoulos. I'm sorry, Bill. Yep. I always That's get good. it wrong. You're doing fine. I'm doing fine. And uh, Tom Spurgeon. 
Um, Joe is on the Comics Journal. Uh, Bill writes for many different blogs as well as um, published a book which we will not discuss today but I want to make a little note of it, Barrel of Monkeys by uh, Rupert Mulot, which is one of my personal favorites from last year. So uh, we didn't put it on the list, but I think it would have been a conflict of interest maybe or something. And Tom Spurgeon, of course, from The Comics Reporter. Um, thank you, gents, for joining me today. Thank you, Robin. Now, we, have, uh, we went through and uh, kind of made a best of 2012 list. Not necessarily a best of, but a list of stuff we want to discuss there are many many best of lists and none are definitive and certainly not ours um so each person kind of came up with four or five comics or maybe more i can't remember and we whittled the list down uh tossing back and forth between each other and uh came up with a fair amount of comics here so hopefully we can pound through them it's quite a lot we also eliminated building stories just because it's been discussed so much, and we also eliminated a lot of books that we've discussed on previous roundtables just so there wouldn't be a repetition, because I certainly have no new ideas when it comes to something like The Shark King or mm -hmm. something like that, which would have been a fine book to discuss in this context as well. I think uh, Aiden Koch's book came up uh, as one of them as well. Um, the Blonde Woman, yes. The Blonde Woman. Um, I'm going to start us uh, with the, one of the heavier books, I think, uh, Joe Sacco's Journalism, um, a collection of Joe's short stories that he's been doing over the years for various uh, reputable publications um, collected in a fine edition, which I'm very happy to have. It should be noted it's one of two releases by Joe this year of uh, the other the title's actually escaping me right now, a collaboration. Days of Destruction, Days of Revolt. There we go. Thank you, Bill. Um, let's hear what you folks think about uh, about journalism. Well, I, I, think, I, I think journalism's in a dreadful state. Oh, you mean the comic. Okay. I'm sorry. Uh, I, I'm very happy to have this book because, um, you know, I think, I think well, generally speaking, um, I really like short story collections because I think um, in comics we've had so much um, overemphasis on long form narrative over the last you know ten or so years um, when some of the most affecting comics that I've read have been short form comics um, and and the only way those can survive in a book format is when there is a short story collection or a book format anthology um, and some of Joe Sacco's short stories are um, among the best pieces that he's done. Um, in my teaching, I've used uh, his two stories from uh, uh, that are most directly about the Iraq War quite a bit: uh, "Complacency Kills" and "Trauma on Loan." Um, and you know, I'm, I've always just like you know printed out PDFs and passed them around to my students and so on. Um, and and you know, putting my convenience aside, it's I just think that those are great pieces, and it's important that they be collected in a more permanent edition. So I'm really happy for this book, and I also think. One of the great things about this book is that um, Sacco's long-form books tend to be about a couple of very specific regions of the world, uh, the Gaza Strip and the former Yugoslavia, uh, but he's covered a lot of other different kinds of stories in, in a lot of different places. Uh, so in, in journalism, you get to see him in India, in Malta, uh, sort of taking on a variety of issues 
and actually you get a, a stronger sense of the common thread uh, that links them all together and a stronger sense of his points of view uh, and interest by seeing him engaging uh, a lot of very different kinds of situations. So I think it's just, it's just a great book, um, and, and I hope it got the uh, notice that it deserves. Yeah, when I yeah, think of when I think of journalism, uh, the book, I, because I like to to look at all of the little text pieces, and I enjoy like little bonus sections. And after all of the short stories, Sacco does a little uh, a little short text piece explaining, you know, like I don't know if my editors understood this, or uh, they threw copies of the magazine in front of me and didn't want to talk about it, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But when I look at the text pieces in tandem with the uh, comics in here, I get this really interesting sense of uh, of trying to clarify the the ambiguity and I think a lot of the broader public's minds of what comics journalism or even journalism itself ought to accomplish because Sacco's kind of the trailblazer here in comics journalism where, you know, doing reportage in comics form, people uh, kind of have expectations about that. And I think he's really, really trying to lay down throughout this book that, you know, I I'm trying to get the facts as they occur. I'm trying to write things as they occur. But but in the end, you know, this, this sort of ideal of perfect balance is impossible. It's not something I'm really interested in. And I personally found Sacco's work here to be most interesting in, as Bill said, some of the Iraq War stories, the little Iraq War trilogy in there, um, where he's kind of he's kind of really pushing at the dramatics of his style. Like if you recall an earlier book he did, The uh, Fixer, uh, there's this whole introductory section in The Fixer where they're walking through like these these stormy skies. I recall it, it, it's very epic and and David Lean like almost like wow shit's going down and uh, complacency kills, which Bill names uh, begins with this wonderful little sequence with the uh, army Humvee zooming down the road and, and to protect themselves they just run Iraqi cars off the road like they don't move for them, they the cars move for their Humvee and uh, that's this wonderful like opening satiric image. I'm sure that it actually happened and Sacco's reporting something that happened but it's positioning at the beginning of the story, you know it, it creates this little message that uh, this little allegory that sets the tone for the story that's coming and then I actually really like the Iraq story Bill didn't mention uh, about the drill sergeant uh, trying to pound the Iraqi uh, army into shape and this you know, poor guy who has to translate all of his, you know, off-the-cuff uh, profane dialogue, like, into the language that these, you know, villagers can actually understand. And when you get to the end of that uh, section, Sacco pretty much says, you know, this is this is a criticism of the Imperial project, but it, it's still reportage. That's an aspect that reportage can embody, and that's kind of, that's really the message and the sense I get from this book. Yeah. You know, one thing I liked about the book is that uh, unlike some of the long form stuff is that the stories themselves were sometimes not suited to what Joe does really well in other words the stories themselves kind of had to be told like it or not they weren't kind of uh, magnificent Joe Sacco stories and like the story on Malta with the uh, the um, the African refugees I liked quite a bit because I got a sense, and I, actually Joe disagreed with me, but I got a sense reading that story is that he didn't really find the center of the story for a good long while while he was reporting it. He kind of kind of has to search around a little bit before he finds the kind of you know people and personalities and situations that that kind of uh, allow him to kind of unpack the point of view that he has on the subject that he's engaging. There's also the story about the uh, the two gentlemen that are brought over to testify about war crimes 
and his frustrations and kind of having to uh, exploit them further by, you know, asking his questions. And then, you know, there are a couple of the stories where he's just kind of, you know, dragged from place to place. He's not as settled in as he gets the, the longer work. So, I, you know, I almost found the imperfect nature of the stories to be really appealing and kind of see uh, Psycho engaged in you know, what he does in kind of a, you know, it, 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 the story has to be done, the story still has to be filed kind of way, and I think it really kind of, you know, really showed how intelligent and kind of this, this uh, really, um, it, it, he's, just a, he's a good reporter, and that, that he kind of is fully engaged with these stories in a way that is not just... Um, uh, you know, in a way that you know he can pick and choose and find the right subject that really flatters what he does. So I, I yeah, appreciated he, that aspect of it quite a bit. He's a good writer uh, too, and you know, Sacco. I always draw like a pretty straight line from the uh, Harvey Picard tradition of like autobiographical uh, underground or slightly post underground comics to Joe Sacco because his you know reportage I think is a pretty natural extrapolation from that but he he has a really natural and appealing narrative style even a writerly style there's a very unfortunate moment in uh, one of the stories here set in the West Bank where they actually include the little editorial introduction from Time magazine um, on the page along with Sacco's comic and it reads like an evil electricity crackles through the West Bank town the sparks that arise when two peoples who hate each other rub together <laughs> I'm like what the fuck is that that's am I reading a Batman comic and not even one of the good Batman comics and when, when you set that alongside like Sacco's like actual reportage you, you can actually see like like the jump in quality and the the, the value I think of, of how he's approaching this yeah yeah. Mm. <laughs> um, I really uh, appreciate the the India story, um, because I think Tom kind of touched on this as far as like it was really far removed from his comfort zone, where it was more kind of a, an immediate having to just grab what he can in the time, where he wasn't able to d develop those relationships with his subjects that he's so good at doing, um, and it was kind of a good example of. Joe jumping into a situation and just covering it. Yeah, another contextual thing, and that that was the story I was thinking of when I when I talked about that because it, you just it seems like he's just getting pulled around and and it doesn't really get to settle in. I mean, it does kind of point out how you know there's one of the reasons the book is kind of important because there is kind of a rush of of uh, a fashionable quality to first-person journalism and comics form right now, which is, of which he's a dominant influence, but it kind of, you know, to have this book out there, I would have to imagine it would be you know, both exciting and distressing if that's something that you were going to do, because there's a real, um, he's just not only, really, he's, a really good, he's a really good cartoonist, too, and I don't know that all the people that practice that kind of journalism are as uh, accomplished as he is. Or even yeah. as accomplished as he was, you know, just back in the in the old days, even just as he started out. So it's really, um, it's a real kind of statement of of his dominance and his mastery of that kind of comic expression, especially in the context of all this other work that's being done right now. Well, I think it's also like that. Right now, a lot of the stuff we're seeing is people trying to get it up online to be as contemporary as possible to the story 
where with Joe there's you know for most of the stories except for I think one of them they're all kind of um, a lot of time has been spent between the actual going to the location and the story mm-hmm. being finished. He's of the slow news movement. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do wonder sometimes if I don't afford him more um, and I, I don't know that I, I, I'm, I'm properly skeptical when I read his stuff too sometimes because sometimes I, I think that you know, I know that Joe's a smart guy and he spent a lot of time on something so it's almost like I almost defer to him and, and some of the when I read him. I, I, I almost mistrust, distrust myself as a reader of Joe's work because I don't, um, I just kind of figure if he's stewed with something this long and has come up with that opinion, it must at least be a pretty good one. So and it's hard to stay skeptical. And I, that, that is kind of the nature of that long form or the delayed uh, journalism that he's doing as opposed to immediately getting it up or, or getting it online. There's a nice manifesto-like quality to this book too. Just calling it journalism, and uh, he he um, he just wants to get all of those questions out of the way in a very kind of direct, firm, and succinct form in the introduction that I really admire because he is, as you say, a smart guy, and not just smart about um, making comics and doing research, but also smart about um, engaging with the questions of what it even means to make this kind of work. Um, and that's also something that you know maybe sets him apart from uh, a lot of the other people who are kind of rushing uh, to label themselves as comics journalists right now. It is kind of interesting, as, as you uh, suggested, um, how quickly this has become a kind of um, almost default form of comic storytelling. Um, you know, it, it's starting to occupy a position that you know, autobiography and dream comics uh, <laughs> occupied in the 90s, you know, where it's mm-hmm. like, if you want to be a cartoonist and you want to develop your skills, but, you know, you're not, uh, you know, you haven't maybe found your voice in a certain way, well, here's this here's this uh, kind of material that's at hand that you can work with. Um, uh, but but he is, he is uh, you know, by far like the dominant figure in the field, and it's not just because of the cartooning skills or just because he sort of expends the shoe leather to go to these, you know, uh, remote places, uh, but, but also because he's just really grappled with these issues for so long and he doesn't take any part of it for granted. Mm. Well, you know, just the fact that Joe has a career and has a successful career is a wonderful <laughs> thing for comics and something that we don't, that I don't take lightly. I know I've been around longer than, than you three have, and I can remember Joe's um, you know, professional outlook, I think, at you know, one point when he was doing a serial alternative comic and they were selling very poorly even at a time when, when comics like that didn't sell great to begin with unless they were Peter's or Dan's um, comics. So, I mean, I think it's, a, it's nice to have that book out this year to kind of, you know, a, a, you know, a really good cartoonist working at the top of his game and gets to have these these long-form comics coming out of all of these great publications. There's something very positive about that. I don't think that can be uh, dismissed, as frustrating as comics can be. Is he as much a part of the kind of dialogue in comics that we're having nowadays, or is... I almost feel like he's not as much as someone within comics we're looking at as much and discussing as much. Well, I, tend to think, I mean, I mean, there's definitely a lot of comics journalism out around, and I suppose uh, tacitly Sacco is sort of uh, an influence on there, but I, I, I tend to see Sacco's works as, you know, 
here's the dispatches from Joe Sacco, and even stylistically, I, I like, you know, his art and narrative approach very much, but I see him very, very much connected to kind of an older generation of alternative and post-underground comics that I don't think entirely clicks with the kind of uh, mark-making-y, more doodly sort of uh, comics that are out now. I, I sort of see Sacco as off on his own island, but it's it's like an island that's sort of it sort of radiates outward, you know? That's a really great metaphor. I'm so glad I said it. Yeah, but isn't that a weird question to begin with? Who gives a shit if he's not, you know, if he's connecting to the kids of the day? Why should he? Why, what, what does that matter? It's like all those goofy <laughs> web cartoonists attaching themselves to some weird Gary Trudeau joke and literally drawing their own comics in the empty panel that he uses as a gag. It's just like, I don't... What Joe doesn't have anything to do with... with <laughs> younger cartoonists and he shouldn't this is you know just as Joe didn't have anything to do with Ernie fucking Bushmiller either you know who cares alright I've been put into my place for the first time uh, no that's not, not, not <laughs> negative it's just, a, just an odd question you know? it's just an odd question I just don't know why he needs to connect to the dialogues of today or anything like that Joe is Joe Joe's doing what he wants to do and it's a good thing, man. It's really, it's a joke. It's a, Sacco's a, a positive story for comics. Last quarter century of comics, there are a few more positive stories than Joe Sacco's career and, and career output. Mm-hmm. I'm going to move us on to, uh, on to the new generation, I guess, is uh, Annie Sullivan by Joseph Lambert, a uh, book he's been working on for quite a number of years, uh, living in White River Junction in Vermont. I guess, uh, did he start it while he was still in school, or when he finished school, he started, I can't remember. Um, I do not recall. I mean, ultimately... Ultimate... That... Are you asking if he started on this while he was still in school? Yeah. I don't know. I the, work was, the work was ultimately released under the auspices of the Center for Cartoon mm-hmm. Studies, though. Yeah. And it's, uh, I guess, fourth or fifth of these... Uh, books that Hyperion's been releasing that has to do with the school. There was uh, James Sturm did one and uh, Rich Tommaso which... and John Porcelino have also done them. Um, yeah. Jason Lutz is an instructor there, I think served as an editor on this book or a consultant. So it's it's a it's an in-house thing up there. And certainly Man. a lot of those cars... Certainly Lambert has, has remained kind of aligned with the school and has done work for them here and there, you know, on their talk, publications. Talk about, positive, stuff like that. about positive comic stories, John Porcelino getting published by a Disney publisher, man. Yow. Yeah, that is. <laughs> um, this book, I, I really loved it. Um, it really shows how far... Um, Joe's come as a cartoonist and just kind of his talents in being able to tell a story um, especially when you're kind of trying to visualize really odd abstract ideas Um, I'm very happy there's a Joe Lambert and I'm very happy there's a book like this Um, what do you guys think? I think I, I think it's a little tough sometimes um, to assess a book that's very clearly pitched at um, a certain age level. Um, I think these books are all um, I haven't read. I think I've only read maybe one of the other ones in the series, but they definitely seem to be um, 
conceptualized as you know graphic biographies for uh, younger readers. I don't know what younger means exactly. If it's middle school or what, I don't know if anyone else maybe has a clearer sense of the um, intended audience for this book. Um, I really, but for for a book for younger readers, I admired a lot of things about it. The kind of um, abstraction, the stylistic clash. Um, the um, not shying away so much from the um, some of the really kind of difficult and dark aspects of um, Annie Sullivan's history and and the kind of difficulty of the initial relationship between her and Helen Keller. Um, at the same time, um, you know there was part of you know th this book has some kind of um, quality. The things that I like about it have something in common with like those first few pages of. Uh, Lint by Chris Ware, you know, where it's uh, sort of graphically um, building a kind of sign system that relates to um, an increasing um, kind of sense perception or, or vocabulary building or, or almost like the discovery of, of semiotics or something. And, um, you know, there was part of me reading it that wanted it to be about four times as long and examining those things almost more um, microscopically uh, just because that seemed like such potentially fertile territory uh, for, for a visual narrative but at the same time I was also kind of checking myself and reminding myself that this is like not a book for someone who wants to read you know 400 pages of you know abstraction cohering into a recognizable time system but you know it's probably <laughs> Like a twelve-year-old or something like that. They're lost. Um, maybe, you know, maybe a I great twelve-year-old. I, I think that I think that I think that, that you're onto something, though. That that it's. I mean, that is. I mean, it's such a. It's a really powerful piece of kind of uh, comics rhetoric in a way, and it does kind of remind me of when Chris's work came out because it was so. There's something that's so apt and so clever and so right about that central artistic rendition of the inner world of Helen Keller that you can't you can't help but be kind of um, affected by it or at least I can see a lot of people going oh wow wow this is really this is it's just really kind of a cool clever way to depict that it's a showstopper it's a very uh, forceful strategy um, and kind of will make a lot of people pay attention that maybe couldn't um, that don't really get a lot of the younger cartoonists I can see it being you know the the one you know the one cartoonist of his age that people say you know I did like that book because it's very and it's very effective but I do think it's, it's kind of fundamentally strong too and I one thing I liked about it I mean I do like the kind of the um, the scope of it, the way that he doesn't solely focus on the 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 Sullivan Keller relationship, but goes into Sullivan's background a bit and her professional frustrations and her personal frustrations growing up. And I, I found that material much, uh, you know, as interesting on a second read as the kind of showier representation of that um, the, those abstract panels. Which you know I did think were were pretty amazing. Yeah, I think he does a, a really terrific job of kind of of kind of breaking down those really basic like 
at times almost like gestural elements of drawing and making it into sort of a you know sort of an understandable and rather experiential thing that uh, a younger that the wee ones could understand and i think in the end he he's sort of making a pretty impressively sophisticated point uh you know for a book aimed at young readers because there's there's questions that crop up around uh sullivan's uh you know personal effect on how helen keller perceives things there's kind of a plagiarism thing that occurs and um you know it it, it sort of it sort of calls into question the idea of how like like language is created almost like you know you know creating the word water from you know the sensation of water and stuff uh and you know how those those drawings in helen keller's head that are written on the page are you know authored in a way by Anne sullivan and using you know in in exposing her to how language operates uh on that level and i think that's something that's that's kind of uh just, just kind of interesting and complicated that's going on under the surface of this uh, young readers thing. Do you feel like, uh, even though it's made for young readers, he's not dumbing it down at all? I mean, it certainly could be, you know, more complicated on the uh, on the visual, uh, you know, inquiry level, as Bill indicates. I, I don't think it's particularly. It doesn't strike strike me as particularly talking down to its audience now. Yeah, it is, I mean, it's very lean and it's very straightforward. I mean, it's not, um, yeah, it's not thematically or, or narratively or, or complex. It's a, there's a pretty clear through line. So, you know, I don't think that that's a, I don't think that that necessarily, I don't know, we have kind of have a distorted image of what that that question means, you know, what does young, what young people read mean? But I think, I think Bill had the most apt, you know, description right up top and that, you know, that there is a, um, a function to it where it kind of kept on, you know, this very, you know, present the story kind of track that um, that was probably the biggest um, result of it being the kind of book it is. But yeah, I'll move us on to uh, to Young Elbert unless anyone else has any other comments on it. I really like that book. Uh, um, one of Joe's picks uh, from those folks at Humanoids, uh, Young Albert by uh, Yves Chaland, um, part of their I Don't Understand Why They Do This $90 books that they print 500 <laughs> copies of, where if you did one edition and an affordable copy, you'd sell a lot more. Um, well, on one hand, I think they're kind of bound by what uh, Les Humanoids in France is doing. They they basically release exactly the same deluxe editions in Humanoids in America, uh, just translates them into English and relate and releases them here. So I think their their hands are kind of tied on that level. But uh, I also suspect they're pricing these things at basically what they think they're going to recover for uh, works of this sort. Like they put out a book of uh, you know pornographic e high gloss stuff called Eros Gone Wild that, I mean, it's pretty much like a DC absolute book where, you know, it's pretty big and you open it up and it has the, the slick pages that you're like, oh, does this feel like it's $90? And you just don't know, but but I kind of figure they're doing that because they figure that's that's just how they're going to recover their money. Uh, Young Albert, though, actually does go all the way, and I don't think anyone else actually got a physical copy of this, but it, it feels like a fucking $90 book, man, with like really high quality paper and stuff, and 
and you, you know, so on and so on. Really nice production values. I chose this though. I'd initially wanted to team it up with a book that I then realized we discussed on a prior episode, which is uh, "Is That All There Is," uh, which was the used Swart uh, collection Fanographics put out early in 2012, and that was sort of a uh, a summary of Swart's um, work in the Adam style, as it would later be called, which is sort of an evocation of a mid-century Franco-Belgian uh, comics aesthetics that he uh, applied to his own <clears throat> to his own interests. And Chalon is another guy who basically did that, was very big on that. He, however, did that, particularly the material in Young Albert, in uh, Medal Herlant, which uh, was later heavy metal in the United States, but this stuff was not the kind of stuff that was generally published in heavy metal. This was the kind of stuff that sort of existed as a, a trend in the French scene, really, in the early 80s, this uh, very throwbacky, rather critical uh, take on mid-century aesthetics. And so I, I just really enjoyed it as sort of a, sort of an sort of an alternate view of the stuff Swart was doing in his work, only here on a, a much more straight-ahead, weird, gag-oriented format. Uh, it's kind of a half-page, like, Sunday newspaper comics thing about uh, just a young Albert, a young asshole who lives in Belgium back in the day. Uh, it's sort of modern, but then it kind of turns into World War II at some point, I, I think because uh, Shalon just wanted to draw it that way. And there's just a lot of really absurd and often aggressively angry and nasty gags about like people's fathers being beaten to death by union organizers and stuff and I just found it to be an incredibly enjoyable and uh, really lovely drawn comic and I'm kind of interested in seeing how other people reacted to it yeah I mean for me oh sorry go ahead no please go oh no yeah I mean I was just going to say that like yeah, it, it would have been interesting to talk about this uh, directly in conjunction with Swarta because um uh, I, I certainly thought about Swarta when I was reading this. You know, I think I think maybe um, American readers especially have a very um, <clears throat> Swarta-centric view of that. Um, uh, uh, I don't know what to call it. That lineage of artists working in uh, some version of that clear line or Atomium style, uh, yeah. because of all of them, he's been translated the most in English, even though that isn't saying a lot because until <laughs> last year's, until last year's uh, Fanographics release it was still pretty hard to come by that stuff unless you had a lot of back issues of Raw or something um, but yeah and it's funny because I'd been aware of Shalom for a while I think um, I think someone uh, republished his Freddie Lombard books uh, that, was also, that was also Humanoids like years and years ago DC yeah. Humanoids I, I hadn't seen those books you know but I just kind of had a little like bookmark in my mind of, you know, Shalon as being one of those guys working in that style, uh, but all, of all of them I only really knew uh, Swarta's work to, to any great extent. Um, so I started reading the Shalon and uh, it was really interesting because, yeah, it started out it started out as being very similar. It, it started out reminding me of some of the minor Swarta works that I've seen, you know, just the kind of short observational pieces with a kind of didactic character or just kind of like a really quick little you know nasty ironic little gag um, but yeah it really developed a lot of momentum as it went along uh, with some really really brutal uh, observations um, uh, of, of colonialism classism uh, and, and and then getting into the World War II stuff just some some real human uh, brutality and callousness in, in the mix and that was surprising to me and, and interesting and um, I, I came to appreciate it quite a bit as I was reading it. 
Uh, you know, I think that one thing that you said, Jug, which I think comes out, um, was you know, it was, it was it was really funny and it was really pretty. And I don't know, if, uh, you know, I, I don't know that I read it in any context other than kind of being blown away by how good looking and how funny it was. One thing that I thought was interesting visually is that it is very loose in a way, despite the kind of kind of this very rigid format, and that it seems like there is no there's a very um, aggressive like it, it seems like there's not so much of, of a giving of a shit as far as where the eye is being told to go at any certain time. There are a lot of hard lines with the figures and some of the panel work where it's just where you would think that this would stop the eye dead and it just doesn't seem like these strips really care if you kind of take them all in or maybe just because I think these were half pages where I wonder if the fact that you are kind of taking them in as a visual unit at first it, when you were reading them originally which we would I was not doing on the on the screen on my computer if that doesn't give you kind of a visual clue but I was kind of impressed by how just very kind of very not just really caring where whether or not they were easy to follow within this kind of very rigid format you know I found that I could, sometimes I was sent scrambling to kind of figure out what I was supposed to read next or what I was supposed to look at but mostly it was very very sensual. It was very, very fun to read and very good. Now, who did the translation? And I wonder if we can't talk a little bit about translating humor generally, because, and that's something that Bill might be able to speak to, because I thought these were, I thought, you know, that that's, it's very hard to do humor in, in translation. I thought this was very, very funny. Um, and you would, I wouldn't think, it didn't feel like translated humor, it just felt funny to me. Yeah. Do we know, it, Joe? Yeah. It it not only feels funny to me, it feels like rather rather like formally humorless, like it formerly humorous, like it's trying to like capture like an almost sort of sort of anal humor of an older kind of comics. I, I really kinda like that. I I'm thinking of one yeah. particular panel where, where like young Albert is uh He's drunk. He's really drunk, and he's hanging naked on a lamppost, like licking his friend's head. And his he his friend is saying something like, "Oh, I'm so humiliated," and it, that's just great. But I I don't have the book in front of me. I don't have the translator's name, which I regret. But yeah, it's very well done in that way. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was funny. I mean, I I can't. I don't know how much I can add to that. But it is tough. One of the things, um, working on a translation of a humorous European book is sometimes knowing like when to leave in the cultural specific references and when to uh, when to um, find something analogous and, and and for me reading this the only um, stumbling block in, in the excellent translation is there were a couple of moments where they left in some you know Belgian or I guess Flemish uh, 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 slang word and there'd be a little asterisk saying you know Flemish word for buffoon or something like that <laughs> and, uh, I mean, I just was like, ah, that could have been translated, you know. You didn't, you didn't yeah. need to like, pull me out of it for that. But that's like such a minor. Um, yeah, and I, and I even yeah, and I agree with you totally there. But I, I, I should say that there's kind of a there's kind of a general artifice going on in a uh, young Albert and a lot of Shalon's work because he's a French guy, but he's like deliberately like evoking Belgian comics specifically, almost as a sort of like 
like Exotica, both another place and another age. So I, I can understand why some uh, uh, of those terms would sneak in. But I, I do agree, it'd make for an easier reading experience to think of something else. But yeah, yeah. It's, it's, the, it's the basic presentation of the like that we get. Is that a, a is that also kind of of those comics? Because there's you know this like, like this young windbag explaining something or you know kind of presenting something like kind of a clever strategy for life, which then gets subverted or, or pointed out as absurd or just as asinine to begin with. I mean, is that is that also based on these comics that that he references that this kind of horrible, you know, windbaggy kind of uh, prescriptive character that we're getting? Well, Shalon's entire approach to comics I kind of uh, identify as a manic depressive fandom where he, he really, 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 really likes old comics until he runs into, like, the blatant racism and colonialism, at which point he just unloads with both barrels on it. Uh, so I presume that's it. Uh, it's, yeah. just that, it's just that the, um, the stuff that Shalon is you know, references quite a lot. He wrote a bunch of little bits of criticism for Metal Hurlant too at the same time on old comics. Uh, just so much of it is totally unknown to an English monoglot audience that it, it's it's an obscurity to his work, which I'm sure provides a hurdle for even reading things like him or Yust Swarte or uh, anyone else in that scene. Mm -hmm. uh, the translators were Natasha Ruck and Ken Grobe. Okay. Just well, for the for record, does good job. Um, I feel like uh, this is a good transition to uh, Nonamba by uh, Shigeru Mizuki. You can correct me if I mispronounce that jog. Uh, yeah, that's good enough. Uh, another story uh, by a uh, international cartoonist about a young man, but this one uh, a, a tad more sympathetic. Um. Is it autobio, this work? It is semi-autobio, but, uh, you know, very a very fictive autobio, let's say. Um, it's uh, part of uh, Drawn and Quarterly's efforts of uh, translating um, manga, and uh, specifically part of, I guess, a longer project, uh, reprinting the work of Shigeru Mizuki. Previously, we'd seen uh, Onwards Towards Our Noble Deaths, his uh, book about his time during the Second World War. Um, this is a very different work. Um, I, once again, quite enjoyed it. Uh, I'm a really, I, I'm not big on my manga. I don't know a lot of manga. Uh, for the most part, I enjoy the stuff that D&Q's been putting out. And this one, especially. It's light. It's fun. Well, you know, we're talking right after Angolan. This was the first manga book to win the the big book prize at Angolan, either in, like, 2007, 2009, somewhere around there. Um, yeah, yeah. I remember I, I remember that because I remember Bart Beatty, who writes um, <laughs> uh, about Europe, European comics, actually wrote a, a, a really rare negative review of this work, which he found astonishingly awful. In fact, came right out and said he hated it. And that always kind of stuck with me because he never really writes reviews like that. But I do remember people grumbling, you know, other people kind of grumbling about the fact that this was that the work that won, you know, was the the first manga work recognized in that way, and are kind of confused by it. Even though I, I found it more, you know, enjoyable but slightly forgettable, rather than you know, kind of, I didn't, I wasn't upset at, by it by as as Bart might have been. 
Well, it wouldn't be Angoulême if the awards. It wouldn't be Angoulême if the awards weren't somewhat controversial in some way or another. Sure. It's just the way it goes. Um, and you know, there, there's always, uh, even this year, uh, I just came back from Angoulême a few days ago. There's always so much conversation about like the political motivations behind one award or another, and maybe you know, I, I could certainly see someone reacting negatively if there was a sense that you know maybe this book got an award because the 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 jury just decided it was time for uh you know um, a, a translated manga to win the award but you know thinking that maybe this wasn't the book that should have been the right, one right. um so i don't know i mean i i would never uh, i i don't think i would I, I would come down real hard on this book because i enjoyed it a lot i thought it was really pleasant and lovely and oh, i don't know i getting feedback right now hello yeah, we it sounded like someone had a car going outside their window. Oh, okay. Um, anyway, I thought it was like you know really um, you know nice uh, work as a as a kind of memoir that had a well motivated magical realist uh, aspect to it. You know, it wasn't just um, this weaving of his folkloric interests with his childhood, but it really seemed well motivated. That he really you know he grew up with these kinds of stories, so he was introducing them very strongly into the story of his life, sort of pushing. That magical realist element just a little bit further um, uh, than you would see in, in a truly naturalistic memoir, um, and and moving too. I mean, there was a lot of uh, kind of sadness in the book. Some really uh, nicely shaded portrayals of his parents, who you know came clear were not just stock characters, but had a kind of you know imperfect relationship and good and bad qualities. So I, I thought it was a nice book. Yeah, I really uh, enjoyed the father, the dubious father character in this book quite a lot. Um, mm. I would actually like to say that if, uh, you know, if just hypothetically this was a political selection on the part of the Angolim jury, um, you know, they, they certainly didn't choose something that was, you know, hewing closely to the, uh, you know, French uh, tradition of comics making. Like, they didn't go with Jiro Taniguchi here. They, they went with a really fucking Japanese comic. Uh, which would be interesting if there was a political motivation. But, yeah, I mean, when I look at No Known Ba, I'm, I, I often kind of think that it, it is a pleasant comic, certainly, but just under the surface, there's, there's a pretty brutal quality to it that's not nearly as explicit as Onwards Towards Our Noble Deaths. But, you know, Mizuki, he, he did live a pretty hard early life. He grew up in abject poverty. He, he lost an arm in World War II, a conflict he was basically shoved into with no desire to participate in. And, mm -hmm. you know, when you look at the, the character of the magical realism in No Known Ba, it's you know, it's both Mizuki's appreciation for yokai stories. It's all about a little kid who processes his life through yokai, Japanese monsters and demons, and the stories this uh, grandmother figure, Nononba, tells him. But a lot of this stuff is sort of, if not to paper over, then at least to, to you know, understand the fact that, you know, in this kid's village he's growing up with, kids are dying of easily curable diseases. There's child mortality. Like, neighbors move in that are literally, like, selling, like, young girls into like sex slavery that's like actually a plot point in the book there and you know it's there's this real uh this real heart of darkness underneath it but the theme of the book is that you know in the end you can't let these circumstances get to you you can you know if not rise above it there's there's a way you can uh, you know, have this be a, a positive influence on at least what you do later in life that's constructive and, and good for you and good for society. And I think the book is very eloquent in putting that sort of theme across. 
Yeah. Well, you know, you it's not a lot. A lot of childhood memoir or a lot of childhood memoirists are often will do a work like this one or you know a work of that time period with um, kind of a real affection and devotion and kind of fierce pride in all of in and how they were raised or the national even the even nationalistic elements of how they were raised or the culture of it or kind of uh, very much a pride in their family and in their story and I, I don't know too much about his background but I, I do remember that he you know kind of didn't wasn't there, was, someone correct me if I'm wrong but didn't he almost like not go back to Japan after the war and didn't really go back to society and almost didn't connect almost stayed in the in the South Pacific I, I'm trying to remember. I don't. I don't. I seem to remember that from reading when the John and Corley stuff started. But it, there is an ambivalence. There is a kind of. It isn't. Um, it isn't putting forward of of a, of a you know set of childhood experiences kind of as a a, a a badge of honor or a pride of of a certain experience. There is an ambivalence to it, and there is kind of a, a, a an awfulness. To it, or there is a, or at least that's hinted, as you said, that subtext. So that's, yeah, I think that's very interesting. I think that's a, that's a very interesting reading of the book, Joe. Yeah, the main thing that comes through is that there were just there were, there were a few adults who gave him sort of like Joe was saying, like certain things that he needed to be able to survive and process uh, the kind of childhood that he had and eventually become an artist. I mean, the, you know, the Nono Ba character sort of you know feeds his imagination and 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 gives him. Uh, this kind of other world to think about, and and the dad also, uh, you know, even though in some ways he's like not a very reliable provider for his family, he has this kind of uh, you know don't worry about things too much attitude um, that seems like it probably would have been would have been very helpful under those circumstances. Yeah, these uh, characters are contrasted as well with the uh, the official authority figures like the teacher at school, who's just you know blatantly a fascist and foreshadowing the fascism that the country's just going to descend into. So, yeah, that's, yeah. Um, I think this is a good segue into uh, Securin, um by Moyoko Anno. Um, once again, please correct me if I mispronounce. Um, a volume in itself of uh, a, a woman, a young lady growing up as a child into prostitution pretty much yes. putting it bluntly um, published by Vertical and uh, I found it a tad confusing at times oh it's very uh, confusing um, maybe some of the concepts just weren't kind of settling into my head as easily I was kind of getting confused around characters um, it's an enjoyable read like it was a quick read uh, but I, it, it kind of left me uncomfortable. I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, Saccharin, this is, uh, I think it's really indicative of the place uh, Vertical, the publisher in particular, is in now because, I mean, manga's gotten, you know, constricted enough that publishers of manga all have, like, kind of their separate official identities, like Drawn and Quarterly is really pushing at classic uh, old-school uh, Gekiga-type manga or manga from Gekiga artists. Um you know, and trying to, you know, break guys through. They've done a real good job of breaking Shakira Mizuki through as a brand name, and you have to have a brand name these days with, you know, 
catch with certain audiences if you want a lot of old school manga to get released. Tezuka is, you know, the big uh, brand right now where if it's Tezuka, then old manga will get released. But if it's someone else, then probably no one's even going to take a shot at publishing it because the audience is very small and very shonen pop comics oriented. Uh, and Vertical has also gotten kind of out of uh, publishing a lot of old comics. They still publish some Tezuka. I think they may have gotten burned financially on some uh, old school shoujo manga they published that the internet likes that no one wants to fucking buy. Um, and so they're putting out, you know, high quality or at least sort of weird or older skewing um, contemporary works. And Sakurand is from Miyoko Ano, a really, a really kind of, uh, you know, alternative popular uh, manga artist, I guess you can call her. Uh, this is basically one of the easiest things of hers to collect because you can just stuff the whole thing in one book. And I think reading through it uh, sort of gives you an opinion on the on the act of stuffing things into a book, because I don't know if everyone else got this idea, but I get the feeling that Sakuran is probably a serial that sort of got canceled at some point, or just had to be wrapped up quickly because maybe it wasn't entirely that popular. It has a very vignette-like quality of this young girl, later a woman, navigating the uh, world of a highly formalized a highly formalized type of Japanese prostitution where she's kind of an entertainer. She builds like long-standing relationships with certain clients. Uh, virginity is very highly priced. And uh, it, it's very much a system of vignettes that dumps you into this uh, setting and doesn't really tell you a lot about it. Just the bare minimum you would need to discern what's going on in the story. Uh, the most interesting thing I ever heard about this book is an interview later with Anno where she pretty much indicated that the whole thing is a metaphor for being a manga artist in Japan and developing relationships with readers and becoming uh, reliable for certain skills that you have and being judged on your popularity for the continuance of works. And the irony I see is that I'm not sure Sakurai had what it takes to remain in the brothel of manga publications, so to speak. Well, you know, I got the same. I got the same sense. I just didn't. I didn't actually think of it in commercial terms, which I probably should have. But I just should have. I just. I kind of wanted to. I wondered if. I wondered if the artist. I think that's you, Bill. Oh, sorry. What just happened? We're getting like feedback loop of Tom sounding like Darth Vader. Oh, sorry. Did it stop? That was absolutely terrifying. Um, it's, it's gone now. But I, I, I just kind of thought that the artist did, you know, kind of just grew away from the story uh, rather than there being a commercial concern. But the vocational aspect of it, I thought were also, I thought were a little, I thought, you know, are, are really not, I don't know if obvious, but, but that it makes a lot of sense, you know? And I think that that's not, that's not something that's uncommon in, um, with North American artists that work in highly commercial forms, you know, comic strips or mainstream superhero comics to have a lot of vocational elements within stories that don't seem to normally lend themselves or, or you know, to kind of a, a commentary on that specific industry. So yeah, it's, it's very pretty. It's very pretty. I mean, there's a, I mean, she has a fashion background, right? So I mean, there's a very decorative element to a lot of the, the presentational aspects of this kind of weird you know, show business, celebrity, entertainer, prostitute uh, vocation that she's spotlighting. I, yeah, you know, she's, I thought it was very, it's super attractive. 
she's worked a lot in uh, costumes, even costumes for movies. And there, there's a Saccharin movie that was actually directed by another person, a uh, fashion photographer. So that's that's very pertinent to this work, definitely. Um, what what Tom was just talking about reminded me of uh, an interview that I heard a while ago with. Um, I think it was Jonathan Lethem, and he was talking about how one of the um, qualities of fiction that often isn't commented upon is just that kind of like textural, vocational information that you get about the way other people live and work. Um, that that you know, if it's, if it's well researched enough, um, comes through as part of the storytelling and is something that people just readers can really appreciate. Um, because it is a way of just kind of learning about uh, the way other people uh, other people live and work, um, and and I mean I I don't know anything about the the historical context that's being described here, uh, but uh, you know what what Joe described is the kind of formal uh, sort of ritualized aspect of that kind of of uh, prostitution in that period seemed like it was very heavily researched and very authentic, um, so it was at least um, interesting to learn about that uh, you know I, I, I don't I don't read enough um, contemporary manga to know how unusual the highly um, elliptical style of storytelling was or how unusual um, the more kind of angular flattened out um, drawing and composition were uh, but I found both of those things to be striking about this work anyway yeah the elliptical storytelling is not very common that's something that really struck me about this too uh, Ano's art is kind of her own. You can see a lot of, uh, you know, female-targeted Josie or even shoujo uh, art influence in it. I mean, she's drawn both uh, Josie, which is kind of mature readers' comics for women, and uh, shoujo manga. This is actually a sign-in manga. It was aimed at uh, mature audiences for men, actually, which is pretty interesting on its own. Um, but yeah, yeah. Well, no, we can go into that a little bit. Could you do? I mean, what, what about it? What about it makes it? What? What would make you think it was for men, other than just being told it was that kind of of work? Is there anything in there? Is there anything in there that signifies it's that kind of that it, it works out of that? That, oh, that that's a really good question because Sakuran does not strike me as a typical sign-in manga much at all. I know it was published in a sign-in magazine, which means it would be you know subject to sign-in magazine editors kind of right. directing her as to how to access this audience. But it it does not feel like a typical sign-in uh, manga at all. There's there's a real focus on you know uh, the woman's perspective in this, even you know just just aspects of female maturity of you know your body developing as you grow older and it's it's a very 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 uh much a woman's perspective but you know sometimes uh manga just gets called something you know they ju it just gets directed at an audience because somebody in the publishing hierarchy figures it'll have the best chance with that audience like these aren't really hard and fast uh, signifiers of content all the time I'm going to bring up another translated work, um, Arsene Shruin, and possibly The Greys. Uh, now, I know Bill and Joe, you've had a chance to read those? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Tom, but you didn't get it? You weren't able to get I just refused to, actually. I just, no, I'm on strike. No, I did. I, I, this, this work I'm not familiar with other than looking through one of them, so I don't, yeah, I'm not going to be able to say much. Hasn't stopped me yet, but yeah, probably not saying much here. 
And I should, uh, uh, one of us really should say up front that um, this is a very, 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 very difficult comic to get a hold of, actually. It was self-published by uh, Olivier Schrauen, the artist, in a very small print run. Uh, someone eventually passed me a digital copy of it. I, I don't, I've been trying to own it for months, and I'm just a total failure at that. And I'm usually pretty good at fucking owning things, let me tell you, so... Well, Olivier, Olivier self-published Arsène Trouin on a rhizograph that he owns. Yeah, uh, yeah. And he, uh, he, I, I'm, I'm under the impression that he essentially makes pretty small batches as needed. Um, and even, even when he came to the Brooklyn Comics and Graphics Festival, he brought kind of a short stack of them. Uh, and a lot of people uh, were looking for it. And and they re they disappeared uh, very early in the day because uh, he didn't anticipate that I think maybe that there would be as many people really actively looking to get their hands on that comic. I was fortunate just because he was a guest of the festival and I was working with him on an exhibition. So he just you know out of the blue one day I got a nice uh, I got a nice envelope in the mail with <laughs> <laughs> his stuff in it and and he sent me that comic and our central number one for me was like probably the the comic book format comic uh, that I most uh, loved uh, this past year. I mean, uh, I think probably I, I've owned it certainly for less than six months, maybe as few as four, uh, and I've probably reread it like three times uh, in, in that period and, and am eagerly anticipating the second issue, which uh, he assures me is forthcoming. Um, and uh, I, I just, I just thought it was like a really tremendous work. I mean, for me, I thought that the man who grew his beard uh, when it came out last year was just, you know, easily one of the books of the year. Um, and and to see him moving forward and uh, moving into something that's a longer story, something that's, um, uh, you know, really taking advantage of the possibilities of this peculiar kind of of two color printing process graphically it was just it's very exciting and um, just the the very you know clear mix of um, biographical and historical information with fiction uh, and and his kind of ongoing interest in representation uh, which in this case uh, sort of takes the form of this uh, sort of as yet underdeveloped uh, subplot of you know modernist architecture in, in uh, you know, uh, the colonial Africa. I mean, I, I think it's extremely promising. I mean, everything that he's done has just been really great, you know, it, it, including Grays and uh, The Mirror of Mowgli. Um, everything that I've seen from him has just been so fantastic. He just seems to be firing on all cylinders, and everything that he does has some other kind of uh, angle, some other kind of visual approach, uh, and every time it works. Uh, and at the same time, it always uh, seems like whatever he's doing has some consistency with, with what he's done before. There is some through line, uh, some range of interests that he continues to explore. So it's just it's just kind of the latest, most recent iteration of, you know, one of the most exciting bodies of work in comics today. Yeah, I um is this supposed to be like I think I read somewhere this is supposed to be like a three issue series in the end. Yeah. Is that accurate? As far, yeah, I mean that's that's what I heard as well. It's supposed to be one of three. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and once it's finished, I think this is going to be Shrowen's, uh longest sustained comics work. Um, I mean, I agree with everything Bill said. I really, really, really like this comic a lot. I, To the point where, getting back to something Tom said about Joe Sacco, I kind of wonder if I have 
if people who really like Shrowan, and I think he is one of the best uh, people out there today, I wonder if there's almost a, a protective or a proprietary interest in him because his comics tend to be so difficult to find. I mean, uh, The Mirror of Mogwai has never been released formally in North America. I actually bought a copy off of Bill at the Brooklyn Comics and Graphics Festival. And, I, uh, I just came back from France with, with another bundle of them. So. Excellent, yes. And uh, his... <laughs> doing... his his quote-unquote uh, breakthrough work, uh, My Boy, uh, which was an English-language comic that was published uh, by the Belgian publisher Brice, that has also never been formally released in the uh, North America. The Man Who mm. Grew His Beard, which was uh, collecting stories from Moam, was sort of a lot of people's first exposure to him, which is a good first impression, I think, because, and I don't mean this in a negative way, but The Man Who Grew a Beard is a definite kind of show-off-y comic with lots of rather psychedelic effects going on throughout these vignettes about uh, people whose, whose own visions of themselves and their reality are greatly different from either an objective vision, if that's possible, of reality, or other people's visions of them. Um, I tend to see Arsene Shrowan and Greys, which was a comic I think he did in the mid-aughts that uh, just happened to get brought over now. Is that correct? I'm not sure when that was in I think it's more recently it's done. More recent than that. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Well, I that was... It... Oh, go ahead. I think he has... Um... If I remember right from talking to him, he has a substantial amount of comics that he'd done before Beard um, yeah. that are very different. Bill may be yeah. able to correct me on this. I, um, I don't know. And and that's like a really turning point for him artistically and kind of finding a new voice. All right. And, and, turning and, point? Uh, the man... The turning? Oh, the, the Beard. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, this is another turning point too because Grays and Arsene Shrowan kind of operate in the same general style. There's a specific connection between them. They have exactly the same opening panel, this uh, very jolly vision of uh, Olivier Shrowan's own delightful face uh, that opens both of the comics. But uh, he departs in our What he looks like. Yeah, yeah, that too. Uh, he has a beard, though, so it's difficult to even tell. <laughs> but, um, yeah, he, he uses that in Arsene Shrowan, though, as a departure to kind of... Uh, transition into this story of his grandfather, which is just a really it's a really, really funny comic I tend to think Shroud is one of the funniest comics artists working uh, his sense of humor is very particular I think now that he's not doing a lot of crazy effects like he do in The Man That Grew His Beard in these new comics they're a little subtler, I think his sense of humor kind of comes through even clearer it reminds me a lot of this uh, Swedish film director Roy Anderson who made these movies uh, Songs from the Second Floor and You the Living I don't know if anyone's seen those but it's this very very deadpan sense of absurd humor involving kind of weird looking dudes and people getting into just just absurd situations that every so often dip down into really intense melancholy and that's uh, kind of what Arsene Shrowan is um, there's a really really fascinating subtext that Bill kind of described earlier where it's I mean this is directly following World War II I believe Shrowan's grandfather was Belgian Belgian, which uh, would mean that uh, his country was actually occupied by Germany for a good while during the war. That's kind of not really stated, but sort of hinted, and he sort of goes to the colonies to restart his life, and he kind of hooks up with his cousin, who's a, a possibly intensely closeted homosexual who has just violent outbursts on any incursion into his masculine, stereotypical terrain, and he, he sort of falls in with this group of uh, 
Belgian expats who sort of want to rebuild uh, this area of the jungle as a as a modernist paradise for uh, humanism to respect all cultures. But of course, they're doing this in the way that just bulldozes the uh, native population. That you know, everyone is totally afraid of things in the environment, of like elephant worms crawling up their penises and destroying them from inside. No one actually talks to the native people, so it's it's very funny, but it's also kind of sad too in the uh you know circumstances that can't possibly end well with this idealistic and hopelessly misguided project uh there's a love story too uh hopefully it's uh Shrowen's grandmother it's a little how i met your mother i think oh, no. well it's interesting uh to connect that to um the yves chalon and uh even uh the book that i published through paramulo book i mean you you can sort of see like you know, we're, I think we're starting to get a greater sense of young European artists dealing with uh, their historical legacies too. I mean, both both the uh, occupations and, and and devastation of World War II, and also their their colonial legacies. I mean, these things come up throughout Schrauen's work. I mean, even going back to my boy, if you remember, they go to the zoo and there's the pen with the pygmies in it. You know, and yeah, and that yeah. stuff pops up in, in uh, The Man Who Grew His Beard as well. Um, I, th I think the first story was called Chromo Congo or something like that. Um, and, and, and in the Rupert Mulot as well, uh, you know, you, you see some traces of that and, and in their other books. It's just, it's just interesting. It's something that I think um, uh, we as, as American readers um, don't think about so much. And, and looking at, at the... It's, in it's just interesting to see these younger European artists kind of still dealing with that that legacy and that history. How, how old is he? I think he's right. like 37 or something. Okay. If that. Is that true, Bill? Am I right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's about right, give or take a few right, years. Yeah. I, I don't know exactly. Yeah, I could look it up, but that, that would be pointless. <laughs> um, I think I'll move us on to uh, Jonathan by Leslie Stein, a uh, Brooklyn cartoonist. This was uh, published on the Vice magazine website as part of their ongoing public printing uh, really nice comics on the website um, Leslie had a book was it last year Eyes of the Majestic Creature came out or was it the year before last I can't remember uh, but Jonathan's a shorter story uh, published in two parts first part uh, significantly longer than the second um, Tom I think this was your pick wasn't it it was my pick, and I've, I've just enjoyed her work for quite some time right now. I thought she locked in with a lot of that work that came out. I think it was 2011 when that book came out. And I wanted a comic that kind of appeared online, and I wanted a comic that not a lot of people had had, um, had discussed yet. Um, I guess, you know, one of the things I found interesting about it was that it, the, the kind of, the, what the the emotional range that she chooses to engage or just the story that she chooses to engage with the comics here this this specific kind of encounter is not something that we or at least I have seen a lot of in comics and I thought that it was very it was a, it was a very apt kind of interesting exploration of that a very specific kind of encounter which is familiar to all of us this kind of random instant intense um very 
context, a very specific context, specifically con contextualized, and a very, um, very much of a moment kind of uh, personal encounter. And I think that that's, I, you know, I think a lot of her stuff deals with very uh, interesting emotional landscapes. If that's not too broad or or, or cheesy a term, um, that that I, I I just thought I just kind of generally liked the work. I liked. Um, Visiting that point of view, I don't know. I just, I, I was, I was, I was just sort of fond of that one, and I'm not really sure that I can articulate all the reasons why. But I want to bring that to our, our, to as many people's attention as possible because I think that she's kind of a criminally underread cartoonist right now. Well, for all the graphic novels that get published every year, um, there, there seem to be actually be not that high a percentage of cartoonists who really have that kind of fiction writer's sensibility um, where they can you know almost it almost seems like they're they're visiting or exploring another milieu or another point of view that's not their own you know without a character who's not you know um, uh, some kind of author stand-in figure um, yeah. you know it reminded me of um, Megan Kelso a little bit um, she is someone who I think of as having that ability you know she's like she's interested in exploring you know, adult situations that aren't necessarily her own, uh, and um, doing so with sensitivity and not premising the thing on some kind of, you know, sensationalistic event or trauma or whatever. You know, it's it's um, it's it's something that's probably not uh, that uncommon in you know, fiction writing workshops and uh, you know, MFA literary programs. Uh, you know, it's something I would hope it's something that people are encouraged to do in those contexts. Um, but but in in comics maybe uh, it's it's unusual um, and it did you know the the other stuff that I've read the eye of the majestic creature stuff is does seem at least um, semi autobiographical in obviously a kind of you know fantastic or fanciful sort of way um, this really just seemed kind of like you know the beginning of like some really mature uh, fiction writing that could come from her and also. So just as on a purely like format level, I remember when this appeared, I was actually really happy that Vice, which is a really you know sort of powerful platform, I think, um, still um, was able was was willing to give over that much space to one artist too. You know, they run comics a lot, but usually it's just like anything from one to four pages, and this was like a pretty substantial. I don't know, like twenty-ish page story. Um, it wouldn't have been out of place in you know, Moam, if Moam was still publishing. Uh, so it was nice to see that. Yeah, this, um, uh, you don't see things like this uh, very often. I, I would actually go so far as to say as the kind of uh, comic Stein is doing here is rather out of fashion at the moment in that not a lot of people are pursuing uh, this kind of thing. And frankly, it's the kind of comic that tends to, when it, when it attracts anything, it attracts a lot of uh, derision, really, as being sort of a, just a just a pointless uh, you know banal uh, showcase of normal stuff that no one would look at like that that's just the criticism it gets like when I heard Bill mention uh, an MFA program like I I started to sweat around the collar a little because oh boy is that is the words MFA program a big big insult in certain I didn't mean it in a bad way but when I said I know it, you didn't mean it that way yeah yeah um, I mean that's a whole other you know, thing. Bill, Bill mentioned Megan too and I remember Megan's uh, New York Times comic just getting hammered 
from yeah. certain corners for a lot of those same reasons or, uh, you know, articulating a lot of what you're suggesting, I think. John. Yeah, I mean, I, I enjoyed this comic. I'm glad, uh, I'm glad Vice published it. I think it's a really nice comic to just kind of go on a website and kind of, you know, float around in for a while because it is kind of just a, just a hanging around comic, you know, about a, a pair of women, uh, one woman in particular who meets this kind of roustabout, uh, driftery guy and they just sort of, you know, chill for a while. The lady has kids, they go to the park and, you know, it, it just sort of goes like that, and then it's over, and it's just something that happened. And I, I think it's almost, you know, I think distending this sort of thing or detaching it from the the rigors of commerce, like where this would be the kind of comic you'd have to buy at a comic store in the 90s as like a standalone alternative comics, just being something that you could float around in kind of uh, flatters the sort of sensation of it. Um, you know, it, it's just a nice kind of comic to be in for a little while this is how I found it to be yeah well I mean that was the, the strength of that particular comics reading experience is that you would there was enough work being published where you would come home with three or four of those kind of unique you know um, different sensibilities and you and maybe even not so much the comics themselves because I'm not sure that how much how much do we remember kind of of the narratives being told by artists like uh, Pat Moriarty or or Mary Fleener, but they you know they very definitely had a sensibility to their work that you can kind of remember. You can kind of remember being in that space for a little while. So I do think that that's an appeal to it, and I think that it's something that can be done online. But I almost think that there's kind of a hyper a hyper awareness either of of, of capitalism or the capitalist needs of of virtual of uh, digital media that either either the engagement of it or the pushing away of it where that that kind of you know a comic for the sake of a comic um, and just kind of spending time in that in that and, and spending time in, in a spe specific artistic sensibility kind of gets lost so and I do like that aspect of it quite a bit I'm gonna bring up our uh, our our biggest book that we we read or maybe didn't read uh, graphic canon um, I've got volume two some people have volume one a collection put out by who was the publisher of this I can't even see it mm. on here easily uh, seven stories press seven stories press oh, okay oh that's what the seven means on the side um, an anthology of I guess cartoonists doing literary work uh, which has some new work, some old work. You'll see things like a William Blake piece in there, uh, followed by Hunt Emerson, there's David Lasky, uh, Maxim Crum, uh, John Porcelino. Actually, we mentioned uh, John's story. It's actually earlier when we're talking about um, Joe Lambert, and part of that's printed in this. And a whole range of other folks, including Aiden Koch, who we uh, discussed last time in the show. And I don't know what's in the first one because I don't have a copy of it. Um, much the same. Much the same. Um, I guess one of the reasons this title came up uh, was, I guess there's a particular challenge for us in kind of understanding it. At least for me, I kind of I got this book and it's kind of impenetrable. 
Well, I, I thought of this book as kind of a almost an academic sampler, really, of, you know, you'd get for an English class somewhere. It's, uh, I mean, you know, they, they know to pick some pretty decent people to put in this. I mean, they have Aiden Koch in it and stuff. I think Kevin Huzenga's in it somewhere, too, isn't he? I think. Maybe in the um, other volume. No, uh, it's very, it's very no? exciting to read the back cover of these books. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, yeah, you get... They, they spruce it up with a lot of excerpts from pre-existing work by big names like Robert Crumb and Will Eisner, uh, but but a lot of the most um, a lot of the sexiest names in comics that are in this book are are represented by old reprinted work. Yes, and you know it, it sort of functions in that way as a you know a schoolroom uh, sampler of stuff where you'd read a little bit of Huckleberry Finn and here's a. Here's an occurrence on the Owl Creek Bridge, and so on and so on. It's like your reading book you get in high school, and it's kind of just everything thrown together with, I would personally say, and, you know, I haven't, there's like three of these out there. I don't even know if the third one's out, and I've never even looked at the second one, but from the first one, uh, there doesn't seem to be a lot of real, I, I guess it's chronological, though, isn't it? It's supposed to be chronological in the periods of history covered? Yes. Yeah, yeah, so that's the organizing principle. I don't think it flatters any of the works, honestly, but then I don't think it's really about presenting the works in all that attractive or intuitive a manner. It's about, you know, seeing history and, you know, reading about history uh, through these excerpts or short comics. It's uh, It strikes me as a very utilitarian thing of uh, parts that don't really add up to a whole at all. You know, it reminds me of this kind of uh, when when my my it reminds me of sitting around with my brothers and we'll be watching like really bad television, like shows on the USA Network or something, and then like a a, a, a someone that act was on that show, The Wire, will show up on it and we'll get excited for like ten seconds. We're like, oh yeah, it's the guy from The Wire. Yeah, it's the guy who played that guy. That's kind of how I felt reading these books. You know, it was like it was kind of nice to see Roberta Gregory. You know comics and it was kind of nice to see Molly Kylie comics and but it just seems it's just kind of the whole of it just seems awful to me it just seems it just I, I just found this a really dreary experience and a lot of bad a lot of bad comics in here just there, there's a lot of yeah so what would you awful just stupid stupid ass comics and so I, would I you say? I, I, and the presentation of them's ugly too. I mean, there's these, these like introduction pages with these gigantic squares of white space and these kind of this ugly type up top. And I, I just don't understand. It's just like it, it's I, you know, I like a lot of the cartoonists that are in here, and I don't. And, and I, 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 I was astonished to see that there are so many cartoonists I like in here because the experience of reading it was just kind of relentlessly awful um, from beginning to end for me. And would you say that's a combination of just a lot of the con contributions being bad and just the just the setup of it being exhausting? Is it like kind of both of those or one more than the other? Or? I think so. And I, you know, I mean, if it was just this, you know, if it was just a ton of great work, great work, great work, great work, I don't think it would be exhausting. It's kind of Kramer's sized, you know, this paperback so I think if they were all kind of cool awesome work that were placed together with some sort of, of uh, animating principle in terms of the editorial but I you know I just don't yeah I mean impenetrable and and just that's not pleasant uh, it was a very unpleasant read and I 
And to be honest, if there was good work in here, if there, I know I remember diverting work in here. Like I remember liking some of the Rick Geary art, and I I kind of like looking at some of the Molly Kylie pages. To I just you know overall just I don't even remember those pages once I once I get out of them. It just seems like if you're on to something else, it's. Um, it's almost like one of those, you know, like or like one of those movies like they used to make where they'd have all the stars from a studio come, you know, and they would all make like ten seconds, ten second appearances, or that that super shitty movie that just bombed at the box office, that movie forty three or something, you know? Yeah. It just seems like it just seems just uh, not a very good book at all. I just I really disliked it. This kind I'm, of sure that every, I'm sure that everyone involved meant to do their best, and I'm sure there's some people out there for, for whom this book will be just an awesome thing, and who knows, maybe 15 years from now we'll be talking about the graphic canon generation of young cartoonists influenced <laughs> Frightened. By, by this book. I just, but for me, as someone who is a, a comics fan and a fan of so many of these cartoonists, it was just like... It was just seeing them on a set. It's like I don't know. It's like a reunion cruise or something, and and everyone was <laughs> older. And it's just uh, I don't know. I just I I almost feel bad inventing ways to say kind of snotty things about it because I'm not sure it's even worth the energy. Um, well, I don't. I mean, I don't even. I don't even have a copy of uh, the first one in front of me. I read this. I read through it uh, months ago, and um, you know, I don't really have a lot to say. I'm just kind of giving impressions that I got about it. I, I don't think I could make a very thorough review of it, even, to be honest. It didn't make a lot of impact. It just seemed like something I was assigned. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think I think we remember maybe, like, from the 90s, a lot of, like, high, in, in early 2000s, a lot of, like, high-concept anthologies, you know, where it's like, we're going to do an anthology, and it's going to be about whatever, you know, like, your horrible... Uh, childhood or you know whatever your dreams or whatever and these kinds of like high concept anthologies usually are not very good you know they just because people are sort of like forcing themselves to work in a specific area that's maybe not uh, the way that they normally work and then you know the editor is maybe just kind of pulling in who's available instead of who's best um, and and uh, and, and and given that there is a history of comics anthologies that you can look at from the very good ones like Kramer's that Tom mentioned uh, to you know a lot of kind of middle of the road anthologies and, and many more um, forgettable and, and poorly conceived or poorly executed anthologies I, you know it's hard to say that um, I, I you know I feel like we're, we're maybe asked or implicitly expected um, to, to kind of jettison that history whenever a, a quote-unquote you know real publisher decides to do something like this and they're sort of not expected uh, to know um, you know to have spent the time to, to look at comics anthologies from the past and see what works and what doesn't and what's been excellent and what you know might be a standard that you want to hold yourself to um, so you know and, and I think in this particular case um, you know the ambition is so huge to do these like three massive volumes covering centuries of world literature you know and and to kind of uh, sort of force cartoonists to sort of obey this high concept that the pitfalls are very many and it takes a lot of intelligence and, and good taste um, to get it through and in this case you know it's like once you take out uh, the stuff that's reprinted from earlier work like the crumb uh, and some of the other stuff and and you know other than a couple of 
of gems, you know, like the, you know, Aiden's piece I thought was really lovely, Edie Fake's piece was nice. You know, overall, the, um, the selection of artists who were invited to participate is really bizarre. It kind of reminded me of some of the uh, less successful uh, SPX anthologies from the 90s where it's sort of almost like reaching back to this notion of alternative comics as something that still has uh, one foot in the mainstream in terms of uh, craft value and storytelling style and it was just really kind of odd uh, to see comics sort of presented that way again you know 15 years or so down the road after uh, so much water has gone under the bridge um, but you know I wouldn't I wouldn't even think it was worth comment um, except that, you know, the thing that's surprising to me is just um, that this book was like, A, really heavily publicized, and therefore, B, um, appeared on a surprising number of, you know, year-end roundups in, in fairly mainstream venues. You know, there was a, a pretty lengthy piece about these books in the New York Times that was pretty laudatory. Uh, it appeared on Slate's end-of-the-year, you know, best graphic novels list. It was in some you know, NPR, end of the year, graphic novels roundup, and just the kind of, um, uh, the, I don't know, I mean, to me, that, that, that the, the, the praise that the book earned was really in stark relief to the kind of, uh, like, averageness of the product. Well, well, and, here, just, just, just what you're saying here, you're naming off these sites like Slate, uh, NPR, uh, et cetera, et cetera, these are all, like, super super kind of mainline uh, miscellaneous news and entertainment sites and I think you know as critics we can all sort of admit I think that um, you know you can sometimes look at the more non-comics specialist sites and sort of look at their lists of what they're covering and they're like yeah that publicist is working overtime man that, they, got, they, right. they got the review copy sent out dude because a lot of the the writers working for these and this is sheer conjecture by the way this is not a serious argument but sometimes some of the writers working for these uh mainstream outlets that they, they don't really read an awful lot of comics but they're willing to deal with comics either as a philosophical thing or, or trying to be part of something that's here and now or they like comics and they just don't have a lot of chance to read them and so they they respond in different ways than you know us lifers here do to books like a graphic canon where it's really you know pressed into their hands by a, a dogged publicist and that's how that's the industry of criticism pretty much yeah, I mean, you know, it yeah. also reminds me that that it, if you get a lot of cartoonists into a book, that it is also just useful in terms in just the terms of number of people that you have there and the number of, like, for instance, I I remember in back in the '90s, the the anthology that always won the Eisner Award was the one that had the most cartoonists contributing to it <laughs> because that, they had the most friends and they had the most and I you know I assume that you know a lot of there are a lot of New York cartoonists in here that have a lot of writer friends and might press upon them to give it some coverage or they might be more amenable to have it covered so it's not like you know not like all areas of comics don't suffer from this kind of closed uh, circle of friendships and relationships and certainly all three of us have uh, all four of us have those kind of relationships, but I, I do think there's something that you, if you just put a bunch of people into an anthology, that, that it get, garners some momentum that way, just from you know people pressing upon friends to to cover and to write about it or to or to say positive things about something. You just explained just how Popgun won an Eisner. 
Ruthlessly average was is a good way to talk about it, and I'm not really sure. Um, it just, I, I, yeah. I think I'm gonna move us on from this. We could we could uh, beat it up for a while. I don't know if we necessarily need to. Um, one of the things that you uh, pick, Tom, is you wanted us to look at a specific uh, illustration by uh, Chris Schweitzer. Um, and maybe give a little background on the. I did, yeah. Chris Chris Schweitzer is a he just uh, is a is an educator. He was teaching down at the Savannah School and just quit to do comics full time. He does all ages books. He does kind of like this uh, adventure series with you know different uh, historical time periods. He's kind of a um, kind of like Johnny Tremaine type uh, uh, Disney like mid century mid twentieth century live action Disney movie type comics. If that makes any sense. Which is a whole area of comics, which a lot of people work that we sometimes don't even think about. Um, how many cartoonists are kind of working that field now, and they're you know making either a full time or a significant part of their living doing comics like this. The illustration I wanted I wanted people to look at. There was an illustration he did for a a um, benefit book to benefit Richard Thompson, the strip cartoonist, and the, um, on behalf of the Parkinsons, which is kind of. Um, messed with his career a little bit and in 2012 caused him to um, give up his daily strip cul-de-sac um, which I thought was the best of the of the modern um, American newspaper strips and so I, I kind of thought that, the, that Schweitzer's um, drawing which I thought was a good drawing I thought was a good um, Example of the kind of thing that you submit to something like this, where you you are asked to draw, you know, something about Richard Thompson's characters rather than uh, just a, you know submit a random type strip. And it was a, a tribute strip which kind of used his strengths as a cartoonist and and uh, of his version of those designs. So I thought that it kind of touched on a number of areas of comics expression that we might not get to talk about otherwise. Um, and also, you know, I just kind of thought it was interesting in that so much of that work, and I didn't want to say anything, because, you know, it's a charity book, and it's kind of hard to say things like that, and people are giving their time to charity, and it's a very good project, and there's a lot of good work in there. This book was actually, the book in which this cartoon appeared was probably best known for Bill Watterson contributing a painting of P.D. Loop uh, to the, and uh, one of his first, maybe his only published work since Calvin Hobbes was concluded, so... Um, there was some good work in there. I like Gary Trudeau's strip quite a bit. But I was kind of struck by how not good a lot of those comics were and how a lot of them were kind of blatantly self-promotional. And I, I kind of thought that was an interesting thing in terms of comics overall and maybe worth mentioning in a year in review, in which a lot of these cartoonists, when asked to contribute something to a charity book, kind of drew their own characters and interacting with the Richard Thompson characters. So you have a lot of cartoons in there where you, it's just people I've never seen before kind of having adventures with Petey and Alice. And that this is not a mean thing they're doing, this is not a selfish thing they're doing, but this is kind of a natural expected thing that we're doing. And we kind of live in this artistic times of kind of hyper-brand awareness and management and self-promotion. And I always wonder how that has an effect on how people make art. And I thought that maybe 
starting with Chris's strip, which I thought was cute and you know well crafted and appropriate, might get us to a place where we talk about uh, some of those things for a few seconds. Just how that that kind of context of self promotion. Yeah. Well, my I mean, yeah. My first thought um, on that is that you know it's I understand what you're saying about uh, brand awareness and such. I kind of wonder if maybe though. Um, you know, having your and I haven't, by the way, read this charity book, so I can't mm-hmm. really comment as to the specifics. But um, I wonder if having your characters interact with uh, the cul-de-sac characters isn't a way of, of of someone just trying to easily express, you know, my characters are me. This is me in my strip, and so I am going to physically interact with this strip by having my characters as my avatars or representatives dealing with this strip here, which is a rather Sophistic way of dealing with this, I suppose there could be more creative ways of doing that. But I, I don't necessarily see the kind of brand building feeling surrounding that as much as someone just identifying with their own work enough that yeah, if I'm if I'm going to deal with this, then my characters are going to deal with this, which is simplistic, yes. But especially when you have a kind of tradition of uh, newspaper strips very occasionally crossing over, it'll be you know. Uh, you know, characters from one strip coming into another strip. It, uh, I mean, it strikes me as more of a, a traditional thing rather than a business thing on first glance. Maybe the tenor of the sure, story. Sure, is no, I, I don't, I didn't mean to suggest it was a cynical kind of or an outside even. I think it's a very natural impulse, and you're right in that there is a competing or a parallel impulse in that this is basically what they draw or how they draw or what they choose to draw and i know that a lot of times when uh, you know older cartoonists would do that that's just that's what they draw they draw their characters and when you're a strip cartoonist you draw those characters seven times a week and so that is what you draw so if you're asked to draw something you would tend to draw your own characters i just thought that it was kind of interesting how relentless that was in that book and how that and the choices was a little bit different than that. I just thought that, so it was kind of, a, for me, it was a more, you know, a, a existing. You know, another thing about that Schweitzer cartoon that I thought was interesting, which is another thing that's a big element of, of making art today, is I'm pretty sure that Chris met Richard when Richard made an appearance at the Heroes Con in Charlotte, North Carolina, which is a, a convention that he attended. And just the fact that you have these kind of, mixed generation cartoonists kind of interacting personally and growing fond of one another that way and that kind yeah. of that social element to comics and that and the effect that that can have on art I think is also a very interesting and kind of under something we don't really consider all of the time except maybe to be nasty about it um, I don't know I just think there's a whole lot of different things going on right now that that, that, that comic kind of, or that, that one panel kind of reminded me of Plus, I like it. I like Chris's work. You know, it seems like a not not, not that I'm going to sit around and read. Uh, you know, the the comics that he does are not for me. But um, I, you know, I like the fact that there are comics that aren't for me. It was a nice image. I mean, I haven't seen the rest of the book, but it was like it was kind of what you would want from a tribute book. Ideally, it was just an artist with skill, but a very different way of approaching image making. Uh, expressing a really clear appreciation uh, for the comic that he was paying homage to um, and only putting himself into it in so much as that it's clearly his reflection on what he finds appealing about that comic filtered through the way he draws, uh, which is different from the way uh, Richard Thompson draws. 
Um, and I think I think that's the best thing you could imagine from something like that. I think I agree that that's a lot nicer and more um, I don't know like sensitive than just you know drawing your characters frolicking with a much more successful cartoonist characters or <laughs> you know shedding a tear or whatever you know over a mug of <laughs> you know it's like I don't I don't think I don't know what that does for anybody but like I can't I can't remember a tribute book in memory that succeeded artistically I mean can you like usually they're that's almost exactly what you get um, yeah. and it speaks to a kind of maybe lack of editorial control it may speak to the culture of the particular corner of cartooning that a lot of those artists were drawn from um, you know I, I remember looking at the table of contents for that book and not recognizing a lot of the names but there are whole areas of comic strips and online comic strips that I'm not super steeped in um, so I mean I don't mean that to say that they're um, negligible cartoonists just that I wasn't familiar with them um, and and I think I think um, I remember like in kind of like 90s comics there was a similar kind of brand building where the kind of you know there there was one path to success which was like you know you create your character and you make your self-published comic book and then maybe you know if you're lucky you'll do the t-shirt and the Zippo lighter and and maybe one day you know someone will option you to do a cartoon or something like that and right. and so so you know you'd go to comic book conventions and there'd be people with these kind of you know banners and buttons and blah 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 and they were always putting the character first it was like the intellectual property was the main thing and I think that you don't see that so much at like small press comics conventions anymore but I do think it is a feature of web comics these days certainly um, I think in part because uh, a lot of those web cartoonists who do make money um, are able to do so because of merchandising and not because uh, they're able to make a living just posting you know a comic strip on a website three times a week or something like that mm-hmm. I'm gonna bring us on to uh, Bulletproof Coffin unless anyone else has any comments on that can we talk yes. about Batgirl first well, I, I think we almost need to talk about these two in tandem. We're, we're, we're yeah. just going to end it with some nice intellectual property discussion here. Well, yeah. we still have Lily Correa's book. I thought we could Oh, shit, that. that's right. Oh, wow. All right, yeah, yeah, yeah. go on, go on. Uh, well, Bill says Batgirl, so let's go for Batgirl specifically, <laughs> uh, issue 15, uh, written by Gail Simone and drawn by uh, Daniel uh, Sempore. Um, this was uh, another pick of Mr. Spurgeon's, um, a title that at least for myself, isn't uh, on my poll list, one might say. Um, Tom? Well, it's not, it's not on mine. You know, well, I, the reason I picked this, and I told you guys this before we started recording, was that it was literally when you asked me for a list of comics, it was the last superhero comic that I'd read. It was part of a promotional pile. And I, you know, com superhero comics are, are always odd to bring up in a discussion like this because for years and years and years they're really not the place where you go to find a lot of the best of the art form anymore despite the well, at least for most people that I know or most people that we run with this isn't uh, percentage wise in particular um, a rich artistic um, this is not where the great comics are coming from right now in my opinion um, you know if it was 1963 we might say differently but I don't think that the, the percentage of comics that we'll remember 20 years from now are going to include a lot of superhero comics, but it's this, it's this weird kind of specific tradition 
that exist there that's commercially dominant in some ways. It exists kind of like musicals exist within the context of theater. as this kind of arch, weird, very um, set of, of specific uh, goals and that aren't, aren't, aren't always artistic goals or maybe not artistic goals as we would understand them in terms of expression and the complexity of the ideas and those kinds of issues. So they are very kind of weird art objects, and a lot of work gets done in them, and a lot of smart people work on them, and a lot of talented people work on them, and they still end up, in a lot of cases, being very weird. And this comic in particular, I thought, was uh, a good example of this, because this was a, a Batgirl comic, and yet it is part of a bunch of comics with the character the Joker in it, the Batman character, where he goes and does awful things to the Batgirl character and her friends and she kind of resists them and fights against them heroically and there's a lot of people standing around in rooms yelling at each other and there's a lot of violence and it's kind of a weirdly unpleasant experience to read a comic like this kind of as a standalone comic book, which is how I got it in the mail. If you're not kind of invested in that world, I don't, I don't, I can't even compare it, you know, it would just be a very, it would be a very unpleasant episode of a television show to have this much yelling and kind of heroic resistance of horrors visited upon um, your person. Even though I guess, I guess it would have a place on like a Fox TV show or something like that. I well, I think, I mean, Personally, I think a lot of uh, serial superhero comics these days are sort of aspiring to a really, really mainstream network television uh, kind of place. And, you know, I don't think Batgirl rated T for teen is really uh, all that much worse than something you'd see on, like, a, a Law & Order show, like Special Victims Unit or something, um, which are really, really, really popular with a wide swath of people, despite having yeah. some pretty gnarly stuff in it. Maybe not quite as gnarly as this, but uh, I, I tend to see those two things really in tandem. I see it more like an episode of 24, and you're just watching it mid-season. Yeah, but of course, I mean, you can't really take this comic. I mean, this is Batgirl issue 15. It's part two of a Batgirl story called um, Collision, and it's part of a wider Bat family semi-crossover called Death of the Family, which of course being a superhero comic is a reference to something that happened 25 years ago when right. Jim Starlin had the Joker just beat the fuck out of the Jason Todd Robin with a crowbar and everybody dialed the phone to vote in on whether he died or not and they voted for fucking Death Man and then the, the Joker became the Iran's envoy to the United Nations and it, it's it's just uh, it's just the stuff superhero readers remember. Don't forget and, Jim uh, Aparo. I wish it was as good as your description of it makes it sound. <laughs> it but, always yeah. works better. It always works better when you're thinking about it in retrospect. Yeah. Uh, well, well, but I want to actually want to pick up that point about referring to stuff 25 years ago. And I'm, oh, I'm yeah. sorry to interrupt you, <laughs> but like for me, reading this comic book because I grew up reading a ton of superhero comics, but I don't follow them so much now. I felt like the best and worst things about this comic book. Or that I understood it, um, and which is to say, the best, the the good side of that was that unlike some of these other superhero comics that I flipped through in the store, like it wasn't this kind of like crazy fragmented storytelling where like twelve things were going on at once and there were seven different pencilers and references to five different crossovers. Like Gail Simone is actually you know like a pretty solid like 
writer in an old tradition, older, I think older tradition maybe of mainstream comic book storytelling where she makes sure you understand what's going on and the action is clear and you understand where the characters are in physical proximity to one another. So that's great, like good for th that. But the worst part about it was that I understood it because it was basically a sequel to uh, that Alan Moore comic. Um, what's it called again? Killing Joke. The Killing, the Killing Joke. Joke. Right. Killing yeah. Joke. I mean, it's basically like a straight not, sequel to The Killing Joke from like only, 1980. Not only is it a sequel to The Killing Joke, but the entire the, it, the, the issue is cross cut between the Joker like sitting in a room with a psychologist and uh, the action with Batgirl at a different point in time in the future. Well, in the present, the Joker in the room is a flashback. And all of the Joker stuff with the psychologist is, I would say, a pretty blatant and obvious homage to uh, the scene with Rorschach and the psychologist in Watchmen, except in this uh, thing, instead of Rorschach gradually beating down the psychologist with the terrible circumstances of his origin, the Joker just, like, I think on, like, the second page of this confrontation, he's just like, yeah, what if I murder your kids? They're kidnapped. He, he just says something like that, and the psychologist is freaking out, and the Joker just keeps piling on this, this horror in the most blatant, blunt, and rather obvious way. And I'm not, I, I don't want to be insulting to Gail Simone here. I know sometimes, you know, when you write like heavy crossover-centric comics like this, you know, the, the editors are telling you to do one thing and you're trying to do another thing, but, but oh boy, if you compare this to like any of the old Alan Moore stuff, I mean, it's just it's just so simplistic and on the nose and pounding. And, and then there's another area later where that girl is naming all of the parts of the Joker's body she's trying to kick the shit out of. And it's, it is straight up the operating table scene from The Dark Knight Returns, Frank mm -hmm. Miller. And it's, it's just this incessant, incessant referencing to older stuff that you'll remember. And here's a little bit more of it again. I guess, in a way, you could argue maybe that at some points Gail Simone is trying to confront these earlier very macho masculine types of comics by having you know a battered and hurt and recovered and strong woman like dishing out the pain but then you know it runs into the problems with superhero comics where you can't really do anything to the Joker because he makes so much fucking money so there's this this whole through line of the issue of going like I'm Batgirl I'm worse than Batman I've been shot by the Joker I might just kill you I'm the edgier Batman you don't know what I'm gonna do but she doesn't fucking do anything because this comic has to be $12 worth of chapters in order to recover its money from the superhero fan base, and she's not going to kill the Joker anyway because he's a valuable IP, and just etc., etc., etc. Just so much baggage that I think clashes with the ideas that are trying to be in play with this comic. It's it's quintessential in that way. It is quintessentially superhero comics in 2012. Mm -hmm. I'm glad Tom Spurgeon brought it up. Well, you know, another thing I wanted to I wanted to make a point about this comic, which is the fact that it's a crossover and the fact that it has all this referencing material in it. In it there's a it's part of a DC Comics relaunched their line about I guess a year and a half ago after sales had become so lousy that they needed to do something in order to kind of revitalize um, the even limited sales that you get through American comic book shops and hobby shops, and it was very successful. The most successful, um, especially ahead of expectations, book in that relaunch was the uh, Batman book, which was written by Scott Snyder. And reading Greg those Kilo comics, wrote, yeah. reading those comics, I, I interviewed him about this. But reading those comics, one of the things they did very, he does very well, is that he 
very much gives you an idea. Like, there are very specific story beats. You very, you know, something happens in every issue, and it's very clear what happens, and it's very clear why that's important to the kind of serial comic book experience that you're having. It's not a, it's not a mess. It's not 15 different things. It's not 18 different subplots like they got, you know, like those kind of comics were for many, many years. It's very straightforward. It's very much like a television show, like one of the Law & Order or the, uh, the CSI shows, where there is a self-contained quality to it, um, at least within the kind of realm of, you know, five or six of these uh, serial stories strung together. And this one, even just a short year later, or a half year later, is um, kind of um, seized upon by editorial mandate to spread into a bunch of different issues and kind of almost, it's one of those things where editorial mandate, working under the editorial mandate must be very, very weird for creators because it almost kind of subverts the very thing that was successful about that initial run of comics by taking out the clear story beats and to spreading them all these expectations around to a bunch of different um, titles, you know, whatever the 10 other Batman titles there are. Almost like if, you know, like a successful run of one, uh, one network show meant that the next season we saw the bad guy from that show appearing on all of the different television shows and having, you know, a moment with with all of the different television show characters where what seemed to really work about that one was just how clear and straightforward it was. And I think that that's um, something that's kind of interesting artistically about those comics in a way is that the editorial mandate is so strong and they're, you know, they're chasing after, you know, four figures, you know, this, you know, differences in tens of thousands or even just thousands in terms of readers that it almost, they almost can't help but pee in their own food immediately after a, a good meal is served. Um, yeah, it, it, it's almost it, the editorial mandates are almost pathological at this point. So well, I, I did want to bring that up in terms of of the recent context of superhero books too. Well, also in the context of Gail Simone, wasn't this around the time where she was uh, fired, fired from the title fired, by yes. email? Um, she, she was terminated from her position by email, and then they apparently rehired her really, really quick when there was a, a huge, uh, rather understandable backlash to firing someone via fucking email. There you go. Yeah. So, yeah. It's interesting. You can have just a random superhero book, and yet where, you know, there's 15 reference points, and it's a very complicated, weird uh, form of expression, those books. Well, on the note of many reference points in comics, uh, Bulletproof, uh, Coffin, uh, I guess Series 2, Disinterned, uh, itself, I guess, references a lot of past comic book traditions. And it other, does. Other literary traditions as well, which we'll get into. Uh, Shaky Kane and uh, David Hine. Um, the first volume was very much a story in itself in this I guess each issue is a story, but it interweaves well and touches on the first volume. Um, I liked it a lot more than the first volume. I really think they'd come a lot further. Um, published by Image Comics. Uh, did you guys enjoy it more than Batgirl? 
I uh, I think it's better than the first bulletproof coffin as well. And um, you know, when you say there's a lot of reference points, the uh, the first bulletproof coffin I think was a pretty unique series that was also Hein and Kane in that um, it was sort of a parody of a well a really a pretty nasty gnarly criticism on on fan attitudes of propriety towards superhero characters the lead character is this exterminator dude who's like really in love with these old comics that he wants to be become part of them and he's menaced by weird forces and he eventually meets uh, David Hyde and Shaky Kane or really unflattering fictional variations thereof um, and you know the bulletproof coffin is unique uh, the first series in that it's not only a parody of you know kind of going after superheroes and superhero fans a little it in the end actually opens up pretty hard on superhero creators like you don't see a lot of criticism of the creators as a class but it pretty much you know states flat out like you know the the bad situation we're in is in part because creators keep making choices that you know uh, give them uh, economic success in the short term and you know just damage things all around uh, but of course the creators are also in a position where very 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 few comics companies who do very specific things have the ability to offer the uh, you know comfortable middle class life that Americans certainly are uh, meant to uh, aspire towards so having those means of production puts them in a very bad place it's a very broad nasty rather bitter ugly criticism it's and uh, Hein and Kane are British guys by the way although they're the versions of them in the bulletproof coffin I believe are American and uh, at least shaky Kane is and um, it's you know it's inescapable to think of the you know a lot of work that Hein in particular well Hein only has done in uh, mainstream comics a very variable quality um, so that's a really important and nasty subtext behind the first one the well second... and also Shaky himself doing Judge Dredd comics under different names right? I think he's done some of that yeah um, yeah I think so uh, the second bulletproof coffin though that's uh, I mean that really takes things farther I mean this actually kind of dispenses with traditional narrative flow in its entirety so that each issue is kind of a comic that, you know, the fake Shaky Kane and David Hine have made that sort of embody their horrible fears. There's a, there's a, there's a see, there's a through line in the narrative of this like evil meteorite that's causing trouble in the world, you know, just like the uh, animated heavy metal movie with the SCTV cast. Um, but each issue kind of takes on a different persona where the first issue is just this, uh, this police officer guy who's just crazy, crazy paranoid and eventually becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and murdering his partner. There's an issue that's done in almost a cut-up style, a William Burroughs-influenced cut-up style that I don't think is quite successful in that way of no. sort of randomizing the narrative intent. I think it was all random pictures that Shaky Kane put in an order and that David Hine kind of scripted over that order. But uh, it provides this really, like, really elliptical, conspiracy-minded origin story for the world with aliens and, and government trouble. And then there's just, like, really intense issues. Like, issue three is my favorite. It's this kid playing with his toys, and it's sort of... It's sort of frames superhero action in the modern world as a child banging toys together, but what it says is that a child banging toys together isn't necessarily an innocent or a fun thing. There's a lot of environmental factors that could make a child's play like nasty and ugly, and throughout the series there's this there's this strain of really acrid and ugly conservatism that exists in society that infects the very superhero-laden action that goes on in the Bulletproof Coffin universe. It's, it, it's 
not a really focused series, but it's a really intense and I think affecting series. And that's kind of the thing I go to superhero comics that are bound to reference lots of stuff for. This is referencing a lot of shit that's, you know, going on in the scene, that's going on in society, that's going on in, in you know, offbeat literature. It, it's definitely my favorite superhero comic of the year. It's the kind of superhero comic I really want to read at this moment, which maybe speaks to reading too many fucking superhero comics, but yeah. I liked it a lot. Uh, yeah, I think I, I hadn't read the first series, so in a way, I, I you know, in much the way that it seemed like every successive issue of uh, the Bulletproof Coffin disinterred was almost like a refracted version of what had come before. I could sort of imagine the entire disinterred mini series being a kind of refracted version of the first one. That's uh, fair. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, I don't know. I mean, my knee-jerk reaction to it really, and and. Uh, I haven't read a ton of, of uh, Grant Morrison comics over the past several years, but it was kind of like, it was really enjoyable and smart. And I was like, wow, this is these guys without like making a big fuss about it are sort of doing a lot of the things that Grant Morrison claims to be doing with superhero comics, you know, uh, you know, by putting this kind of like postmodern, uh, uh, you know, like cut up spin on on superheroes. It's kind of like, yeah, they're actually doing it without having to like shoehorn Batman's continuity into the project as well. You know, um, and and uh, with with much 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 better artwork uh, than than I've seen in just about any comic from Marvel and DC over the last several years. Like a weird cross of uh, uh, Mike Allred and the Bazooka Group or something like that. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> Some Jeff Darrow in there. Yeah. Joe, when you say when you say that you, you describe the the kind of uh, this element of these different aspects of of these comics being uncovered and then almost immediately criticized, or or that there's not exactly a, a there's not a, a kindness, there's not a sentimentality about a lot of the of the different component experiences that go into a superhero comic. I mean, do do you get that as an overall? Then, I mean, what's the overall impression that you get out of the book? Well, the overall impression... Really, the overall impression I get is that Hein and Kane do like these things. At least they like mm. aspects of it. I mean, they... I mean, they're all—they're not just referencing superhero comics. There's like an old school pre-code, like a horror anthology issue, and oh, there's cool. like you know, like Mars Attacks style trading cards going on. But it's all done in sort of a, a superhero-ish idiom is the main feeling I get. Um, overall, I think they—they're trying to say that they enjoy these things, but there's a lot of ugliness behind these things that really, really, really needs to be exposed in order to, if not justify your enjoyment of it, to sort of explain it as like an adult and thinking person. There, there's definitely, especially given the issue of the child playing the toys, there's a child's world of appreciation where you just love things, and there's an adult world where I think it's it's incumbent on you to understand the, the political subtext and the effects that goes into the entertainment that you're enjoying that maybe you enjoyed a long time ago, but that was a long time ago, and you have to be more cognizant when you grow up and become a mature and you know intellectually inquisitive person. That's the message I get. Okay. Now I was just interested if you saw a prescriptive in there, or if you if you, if you saw it more descriptive. Well, I mean, it it's sounds like, it sounds like you see you see a prescriptive in there. Well, there. I mean, I think there is. I, I don't yeah. think, and I don't have like an interview in front of me, but I don't think Hein or Kane, certainly not Hein, are, are super big on the current state of superhero comics. I suspect they would say there's 
not a lot of that inquiry going on right now. I mean, I don't think there is, so maybe I'm projecting myself, but yeah. I think I'm going to bring up our last book, um, Lily Carré's uh, Heads or Tails, a uh, collection of various short stories she's done over the years. Um, some longer, some really short, uh, from Fantagraphics. Um, for me, it's really showing how far she's come with each work. It's just like such a huge step up in kind of emotional depth, uh, artistic, stylistic capabilities. Um, I'm a really big fan of her work, and I'm happy to see this book. One of the things that struck me about this book was, uh, in a real basic sense, was I was surprised how much work there was. I, when I knew that, when I heard that they were doing a book of her work, I thought it would be one of those books that you would kind of go, you know, that they were kind of straining to get enough work under one cover to kind of put something out there. And this was, and this was about a third to a half again as big as I thought a collection of her work would be. And it, part of that was just not, maybe not tracking everything, but part of it kind of also just it just struck me that, that, you know, there are a lot of opportunities to work now that may not have existed 10 years ago and that a cartoonist like Lily can, can continue to publish and continue to get stuff out there, which is a, a good thing, I think. I think there are more artists like that out there than, than, um, than you might even think of off the top of your head, and I think part of it is because um, a lot of the specialty comics publishers have been... I think over the last few years pretty conservative about getting behind new artists um, but artists like Lily who are motivated keep you know putting stuff out and anthologies and mini comics and newspapers as artist books whatever um, and, and and actually there's there's a lot of stuff out there I mean um, the number of the number of new young artists who get picked up by you know the main publishers who might think of every year is is not extraordinary my uh, my initial reaction, very simplistically, when I read this, was like, "Gee, Mom published some nice stuff." Because like all of this stuff came from Mom, right? No, only one story, I think. Only one. Mm -hmm. Oh shit! She was, all right. Yes, yeah, she's a big Mom contributor. Oh um, wow. Okay. But yeah, her stuff is great. I really like Lily's stuff a lot, and I mean, I mean, I I take Robin's point that there is some sense of progress in the book, um, but you know, it reminds me of a couple of other books that we talked about today. I mean. You know, in a very basic way, the the Sako book. You know, as I mentioned about that one, I do I really appreciate really strong short stories, and it's nice when you can see an anthology of someone's short stories together. And Lily is very good at short stories. Um, and the other book that I mentioned before that it sort of reminded me of the most, in a way, was the um, Shrowen book from last year, The Man Who Grew His Beard. You know, it really had that sense of being. I mean, it almost came out like at the same time in the calendar year, very similar format, same publisher, and it had that same feeling of like, wow, here's like a really beautiful book collecting a bunch of really strong stuff uh, by one artist in the short form. And on the one hand, you can see, you know, a certain kind of progress or experimentation with different art making media, but at the same time, yeah, this is a really coherent book you know, by an artist who's got a very particular point of view, but every time she tries a new medium, you know, she does it really successfully and um, to to kind of express her point of view in a different way. I mean, I thought that there were some new stories in the book. One of them was, I think the title was Rainbow Moment, and um, I just thought that was just a really kind of beautiful and, and exquisite short story that made really, really good use of the she's been working with color recently. 
I was definitely impressed by the uh, cohesiveness of the book too. A lot of the, uh, which which in a way connects it to the man who grew his beard, because that's a very cohesive anthology. And um, I mean, a lot of the stories here deal with indecision. Seems to be a running theme in uh, her work. Uh, it manifests in a lot of different ways in different stories. I actually like just the setup of. Uh, how this discussion that's happening here went. Uh, there's a story in here, I forget the title, but it's about a guy and a lady and her kid hanging around at the uh, state fair that's actually very similar in content to uh, Jonathan, the uh, story Tom yeah. asked us to read. And I found it interesting to compare how they they kind of went through where, you know, the uh, Leslie Stein version is sort of just a sort of existence thing while the Lily version is, is much, much more intent on, uh, you know, showing the guys sort of, you know, not knowing what he's doing with life, uh, seeing other people as blown around with the wind, his roof's leaking, all, all the metaphors going on, and, and, you know, how it's really intent on broadcasting this uh, theme she's got going. I like the comparison between those two, just in the way this discussion is set up. That wasn't on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that's it, unless anyone has any more comments on that work. It's really good. It's really good. I I agree. It is. I mean, the color, the her her color sense is really interesting too. And I, I I'm really inarticulate when it comes to expressing what. But I, I like the fact that there are, are just a tremendous number of different approaches to color, from full you know, from full color to limited color to single color, you know, to to, to some gray, very gray scale looking things. I, it's nice to see someone take the full range of and I assume that that's you know assignment to assignment but to have them all into, in one place is kind of fascinating the carnival story is very uses that very well and so is Rainbow Moment as I recall if that's the one is that, it's called Rainbow Moment right I, the, the, I think and so that uses, that uses a variety of different strategies within the story in terms of, uh, of the color so yeah and you know, Lily is someone who Lily is someone who works in a range of media. You know, she does like abstract animation and printmaking and artists' books, and that's like yeah. super healthy for comics to have. You know, someone who's got like a much broader artistic practice, bringing uh, bringing um, those experiences into the comics form, and not just being influenced by other comics. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a nice uh, representation of the type of stuff you'd see. At, uh, at your Brooklyn Fest. Oh, thank you. <laughs> good year? Good year? Was it a good year? I think it was a good year. We do pretty good now. Really well, it seems. It seems like there's always a lot of good work anymore. I, I think um, kind of putting together the list, uh, there was a lot of compelling work on there, and I think there's a lot of work that we specifically didn't touch on um, that we could have easily... Um, but is you know oh, other sure. you know like there's no Hernandez here and as usual those guys are doing fantastic work. Well, I, I don't want to embarrass Joe or anything, but I know he was involved in a Twitter controversy recently that had something <laughs> to do with um, you know it had something to do with like you know if a critic is choosing to cover certain kinds of work, is there a kind of implicit statement of value or endorsement or comparative 
um, assessment uh, relative to the work that isn't being covered. And Joe, you know, quite intelligently, you know, articulated the point of view that no, uh, just because I'm covering something as a critic doesn't mean I'm saying that this is the most exclusively valuable thing or that it's superior to the stuff that I'm not talking about. It's just the stuff that I, as a critic, am talking about right now because that's where my interests are taking me. And sure. I mean, in other fields, that wouldn't even need to be said. Um, but you know, in comics, up until you know maybe a certain number of years ago, it almost felt like it was possible to read everything, to know about everything, and if you were a critic, if you wanted to, almost to write about everything. And now that's just not possible, you know. And and this list of books that we talked about today, you know, we're we're not by any means anybody's list of like the best books that came out this year. You know, this was. Uh, a, a sort of massaging together of a few different lists and even those you know as Tom said like he wanted to talk about a superhero comic he wanted to talk about something that came from online you know just because we're we're uh, assessing the year in review in a certain way through a certain number of books and it's good it should include you know some stuff from different areas even if they're not our favorites it should include some stuff that maybe wasn't our favorite like you know the graphic canon for example that got a lot of attention and that's just interesting to think about you know like why does this book get a lot of attention in 2012 uh, if, if you know it's not something that we felt necessarily set the world on fire um, so it's it's not you know it's not about necessarily making the list of the best books of the year yeah, you know, I, I think of it as I think of it as an Armand White thing. Not that we're saying this is better than this, like he does, but that instead of really providing a list of the best things, you're just kind of kind of covering different areas and kind of saying, well, this isn't so good, but th comparatively, this is an interesting area, and kind of going all around the map and stuff. Props to Armand White. I you know I, I stopped paying attention to what uh, Joe was saying online after I figured out it wasn't about me, so I'm not sure. <laughs> That I, I have, I'm not sure that I'm a good, but I, I do wonder in general if the rhetorical tools that we have now, these very hyper-commercialized, very strong, very omnipresent uh, rhetorical tools, where you know you're always on. There is always a message board unfolding in comics called Twitter, where people are constantly talking about comics in some way. Um, there's no escaping it. It's not a a magazine that shows up in your house once every uh, 60 days and, uh, and uh, a trip to San Diego in the summer. And I, I just wonder if the kind of uh, art form that we have now, that we're developing now, isn't, that it isn't going to be really tricky to discuss it in an exciting and in a trenchant way moving forward, given all of the... Um, given the context of, of how we talk about things now. So that's something yeah. that I think about a little bit because I don't, because I think you're right. I think that there's an, an implied kind of uh, with me or against me declaration of this is where I stand. And it's not just a misapprehension. I think you would misapprehend Joe if you took his serious, thoughtful work in that way, but I'm not sure that it is a misapprehension when you have other people that are using very strong, nasty rhetorical tools to talk about stuff to say that they're not arguing these things very strongly and in a very advocacy way. Oh, but, I, I, I acknowledge that. Part of what I was, was trying to write about, at least in the longer version I did, uh, The Hooded Utilitarian, was that, you know, it's, totally it's kind yeah. of both, you know, it's kind of both the desire to be taken as to exactly what you're saying and the sort of futility of that notion in a, in a growing uh, 
both a growing art form where there's lots of different kinds of conversations happening around and where inevitably they kind of get grouped into big ideas and big movements that sort of subsume the individual impulse. It's, it's a lot like cherry blossoms falling off the tree. Oh. Yeah, but I almost think that that's a, I almost think it's a healthy I almost wonder if it's not a healthier direction to take this back to something we talked about earlier to just realize at some point that maybe they don't all reference each other and maybe it was important for a time there that we kind of have a grand unifying theory of comics maybe you know in 1994 for 20 minutes or something but now everyone can just go back to doing what they're doing and maybe they don't all relate to each other and maybe what Lily's doing is about Lily and maybe what Gary Trudeau does is about Gary Trudeau maybe what Joe Sacco does is about Joe Sacco and I don't want I wonder you know if as difficult as it to talk about it if it isn't healthier for the art moving forward to kind of realize that there are all these different camps and traditions and camps of single people and and maybe that's just the healthier thing Mm. leaving us on a very thoughtful note tom that's i'm a little drunk actually so (laughs) well uh that's what i I started drinking about 40 minutes ago because it's afternoon here um (laughs) thank you so much to all of you uh joe mcauliffe uh, from the Comics Journal and Jog Likes blog, Jog Blogs, as well as uh, Comics is a Burning Hell. Comic books are burning in hell. The comics are burning in hell. Yes, the uh, the you guys are very active with that podcast. You can hear their uh, heartbreaking uh, talk on Tim Vigil and Faust. If you go, that was, that was a life affirming talk, Robin. <laughs> Something different for each person. Uh, Bill. Cardalopoulos, uh, do you have any regular blog output, Bill, or just? No, I'm just uh, lately. I've you know, um, you know, I'm coming off the end of a year where I, you know, we did the Brooklyn Comics Festival. I launched Rebus Books, and I just got back from Angoulême. I'm, uh, I have a regular um, uh, sleep output that I'm hoping to get back to, but I will be um, writing some more stuff coming up for uh, the Comics Journal and the Brooklyn Rail. Nice, and Tom Spurgeon, of course from the Comics Reporter, um, one of my regular morning go-to sites. Thank you, gentlemen, for uh, for joining me, and thank you for taking the time to put this together. Thank you, Robin. Thank you. Will you sit off the f- scratching and give me a beat? Ouch! Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce the hi-hat. Go on. Mmm, that's good. Now the tambourine, right now. Mmm. Whoo! Yeah. DJ. Who's that jiggle on the street with his hands in his pockets and his crocodile feet hanging off the curb, looking all stuck at the boys from home. They all came running, they were making noise, manhandling toys. This the girls on the block with the nasty curls, wearing padded bras, sucking beer through straws, dropping down their drawers. Where did you get? Yours. Huh? Sucker? 
my 